Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. I have a soft spot for the underdog and the underappreciated, and that's how I feel about the Hawker Hurricane. The Spitfire has traditionally and still gets most of the attention and all of the glory. If you asked an average Joe about the Battle of Britain, I wonder if he would mention the hurricane at all. It is my intention in this episode to dig out the truth, dispel the myths, and hopefully get us to all better appreciate the underappreciated Hawker Hurricane. Design and Development The Hawker Hurricane got its beginning in 1933 with an initiative posed by the Directorate of Technical Development, which was a department of the British government which provided guidance and encouragement of scientific and industrial research. The initiative was to move away from biplanes to monoplanes. Hawker's chief aeronautical engineer, Sidney Cam, is mainly credited with taking this challenge to reality in the guise of the hurricane. Before we get to the details of the hurricane's design and development, we should take a quick look at the career of Sidney Cam. Cam was born in 1893 in Windsor, Berkshire. His father was a carpenter, and Sidney picked up this talent and followed in his father's footsteps into the trade. Even as a young man, he had an interest in aviation, and by his late teen years he had already helped to form the Windsor Model Aeroplane Club, which built a man-carrying glider in 1912. He started at Hawker Aircraft Company a few years later as a draftsman, and after only a couple of years was quickly promoted to chief designer. During his long and amazing aviation career, he was involved with the design of Hawker aircraft from the Signet biplane in the 1920s all the way up to the Harrier vertical takeoff and landing VTOL jet. In later episodes, we will be looking at several other of Cam's aircraft, including the Hawker Typhoon, the Tempest, and the Sea Fury. But now, let's get back to the development of the Hurricane. In designing the new aircraft, Cam decided to start with a known design and progressively build from there. He started with the Hawker Fury, and as such, this new, unnamed aircraft was known as the Fury Monoplane. The Fury definitely has a family resemblance to its progeny. Imagine a hurricane, but with two staggered wings and fixed gear, and most photographs I've seen show them colored silver. I'll put up a picture on the Facebook page to show you what it looked like. It was powered by a V-12 Rolls-Royce Kestrel engine. Hawker built about 275 of them, and although they were all withdrawn from British squadrons by the start of hostilities, some were still being used by the Royal Yugoslav Air Force in 1941, and went head-to-head -head with the Luftwaffe's BF-109s and 110s, and you can guess the results of this lopsided match. The obsolete Furies were slaughtered. But back in 1939, Cam took the basic Fury design, upscaled it, got rid of the top wing, enclosed the cockpit, and added retractable undercarriage. It would be getting a new engine too, the Rolls-Royce Merlin. The old Fury had had two fuselage-mounted 303 machine guns, synchronized to fire through the propeller disc. For the new airplane, these were moved out to the wings, where they would not have to be deliberately slowed for synchronizing, and the number of guns was quadrupled from two to eight to vastly improve firepower. Cam had a priority to provide good pilot visibility, 
and so he placed the cockpit relatively high up on the fuselage, which gives the Hurricane its humped-back look. Not everything was brand new, though, with this design. For example, the new aircraft still employed a steel tube construction covered with fabric as opposed to the stress metal skin design used on the Spitfire. That's one sure way to identify the hurry. Just look for the marks of the tubes under the fabric skin in the rear fuselage. The earlier models even had wings that were fabric covered. Prototypes The Air Ministry liked the look of the new fighter and ordered a prototype, which first flew on November 6, 1935. During its trials, the aircraft earned praise from Sammy Roth, the RAF test pilot for the Hurricane, who said, The aircraft is simple and easy to fly, and has no apparent vices. Testing was made a bit more complicated in that the Berlin engine was also new and was also being tested at the same time. Although the test pilots were enthusiastic about the soon-to-be-famous engine, there were problems along the way, including engine failures, which required changes. In the end, the Hurricane had a level flight speed of 315 miles per hour at 16,000 feet and could climb to 15,000 feet in 5.7 minutes. One early problem was that the aircraft had poor spin recovery characteristics. However, some changes to the rudder, including extending it at the bottom, eliminated the problem. Although no formal decisions had yet been made, Hawker thought that they had a winner and authorized tooling up at the company's expense for a production run of about a thousand. It was only christened a hurricane in June 1936, and at that time, the government ordered 600 of them. Production The fact that the hurricane was simple and made use of existing technologies was of a great appeal to authorities. It was cheaper and required less time to build than a Spitfire, 10,000 man-hours for the Hurricane, as compared to 15,000 for the Spitfire. Ground crews in the squadrons found it easier to repair because its fabric-covered structure was more familiar to them. Production was delayed six months, however, in order to wait for the improved Merlin Mark II engine to be ready. In October 1937, the first production model flew, and by the start of the war, there were 550 in service. By this time, there were orders for 3,500 more. Hawker got some help in making all these hurricanes by the Gloucester Aircraft Company, who built 2,050, while the Austin Aero Company completed 300. Hawker constructed the majority of the type, building almost 10,000 until 1944. 1,451 hurricanes were actually produced at the Canada Car and Foundry Company in Ontario, Canada. The company's chief engineer, Elsie McGill, was already noteworthy for probably being the world's first woman to earn an aeronautical engineering degree. For her role in building hurricanes in Canada, McGill became famous in her own right, being named Queen of the Hurricanes, and even having her biography appearing in an issue of True Comics in 1942. She added a Canadian touch to the Hurricane's design, coming up with ideas for de-icing equipment and skis for operation on snow. Although the Hurricane's older-style steel tube construction covered with fabric meant that it was already obsolete before the end of the war, 
it was extensively modified during the conflict. The Mark II had a more powerful Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, and subvariants added more firepower, first by adding more 303 machine guns to having six per side, giving a total of 12, and then changing over to 20mm cannon. Bomb racks and drop tank fittings were added in order to add flexibility and range of operations. The Mark II-D had two 40mm cannons, which earned them the nickname Flying Can Openers for use in tank busting. There were hurricanes at sea also. One of the most interesting was the Sea Hurricane Mark I-A, nicknamed the Hurricat which was an aircraft, usually one which was a bit tired from land operations, and was modified to be catapulted off of a merchant ship to provide brief periods of air cover for convoys at sea. Brief because, although the ship could launch an airplane, it was not an actual aircraft carrier, and so it could not recover it. So once the fuel was out, the pilot would either have to land at a land base, if he was close to land, bail out, or ditch. This Wild E. Coyote-like design was used eight times, and those Hurricanes got six kills. Only one of these Hurricat pilots was lost, and that was when his Hurricane unfortunately broke up during the catapult launch. Sea Hurricanes Mark I-B through Mark II-C were true navalized aircraft with catapult equipment and arrestor hooks for use on actual aircraft carriers. Before we look at operational history, let's take a short break. Operational History In the lead-up to the war, several shortfalls of the hurricane were discovered and being addressed. One was the fixed-pitch propeller. The pitch was fixed for high-speed flight, which meant that the prop was inefficient at low speed and required a long takeoff roll. Imagine starting to pedal a bicycle from stopped in a high gear. It takes a lot of work and time to get going. Changing the prop to a Rotol constant speed prop cut the takeoff distance in half, which would certainly prove useful when scrambling during the Battle of Britain. Also, it was decided that aluminum wings would be able to handle stresses better and were rated to be able to dive faster. So Hawker designed metal wings that could be swapped out in just three hours. They were mainly all changed out by the time of the Battle of Britain. The Phony War was the eight-month period at the start of World War II, but prior to the Battle of France. Squadrons of Hurricanes and other RAF aircraft were sent to France as part of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force. When the French government requested even more fighters from the British, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, Commander-in-Chief of RAF Fighter Command, suspected that Britain might be soon fighting for its life, hoarded his supply of Spitfires, and sent more Hurricanes instead. The Hurricane drew first blood of World War II on 21st of October 1939, when a flight of 46 Squadron took off from North Coates Airfield and hit a formation of nine Henkel HE-115B floatplanes on anti-shipping duty in the North Sea. The Henkels had already been roughed up by a couple of Spitfires when the Hurricanes hit them. The Hurricanes shot down four. On May 10th, the Blitzkrieg hit France, and for the next 11 days, the Hurricanes were in almost constant combat. Although they did well, knocking down plenty of enemy aircraft for their own losses, they could not stem the tide. And once the Battle of France was lost, 
66 hurricanes that were still airworthy were evacuated back home, and unfortunately, about 180 were left behind, abandoned in France. During Operation Dynamo, the official name for the evacuation of Dunkirk, hurricanes were credited with 108 victories, with 27 hurricane pilots becoming aces. Although the hurricanes were doing well, and were known for being steady and tight-turning aircraft, more power and more speed were definitely desired, and changes were made. The change of propeller, previously mentioned, helped, as did changing from 87 to 100 octane fuel. Changes to the engines to allow for more supercharging boost were able to increase the hurricane's speed by 25 to 35 miles per hour for short periods of time. The Battle of Britain began in July 1940 and raged until October. Generally, the Spitfires would take on the Luftwaffe fighters while the Hurricanes would go after the bombers. Although the Spitfires garnered much of the glory during the Battle of Britain, it was actually the Hurricanes that got 55% of the kills during the battle, knocking down 2,739 German aircraft. Although the Hurricanes were slower than both the Spitfires and the BF-109s, partly due to their thicker wings, they could outturn either. Although there is a danger of fire in all aircraft, Hurricanes were extra susceptible due to their fabric coverings and location of a fuel tank just in front of the instrument panel. The only Victoria Cross awarded during the Battle of Britain was to a Hurricane pilot. Flight Lieutenant Eric Nicholson of 249 Squadron, who was wounded and actually in the process of bailing out of his damaged and burning aircraft, noticed that an enemy plane had slid just ahead of him. He got back into his Hurricane, attacked it, and destroyed it. Although badly burned, he bailed out and survived to fly again. After the Battle of Britain, some hurricanes were used in the night fighter rule, going after Luftwaffe bombers at night. In North Africa, hurricanes equipped several squadrons of the Desert Air Force. However, they struggled in battles against newly upgraded 109s and Regia Aeronautica Machi Fulgores and eventually gave up their air superiority role to Curtis P-40 Kitty Hawks. If you haven't checked out the World of Warbirds episode on the P-40, be sure to give it a listen. Giving up their pure fighter role, the Hurricanes were changed over to a fighter-bomber tasking, being upgunned with 20mm cannon and shackles to carry 500-pound bombs. These planes were nicknamed Hurra-bombers. Hurricanes played a major role in defending Malta, bearing much of the brunt of that battle. 2,952 Hurricanes were sent to Russia. The Russians did not love the Hurricane, finding it slower, undergunned, and generally inferior to German and their own fighters. Hurricanes also fought against the Japanese, although they struggled against the fast and more nimble Japanese fighters. By 1943, the Hurricane was no longer capable to be the front-line air superiority fighter that it had been designed for, but it continued in secondary roles and as a fighter-bomber. Its older-style construction just didn't allow it to be upgraded beyond a certain level. Besides, Hawker was working on another aircraft, a replacement for the Hurricane with another stormy name and history, the Typhoon. Pilots one famous pilot who flew the Hurricane, and who is actually my personal hero, is Group Captain Sir Douglas Robert Stuart Bader. 
Bodder joined the RAF in 1928 and was always a daredevil, participating in motorcycle and car racing while also learning to fly airplanes. He first flew on September 13th and soloed on the 19th after only 11 hours of dual flight. In July 1930, Bodder was commissioned as pilot officer into No. 23 Squadron RAF, which flew Gloucester Gamecocks and Bristol Bulldogs. He continued and expanded his reputation of being a daredevil by doing aerobatics, sometimes at dangerously low altitudes. Finally, his luck ran out on 14 December 1931 when Bodder attempted some low-flying aerobatics at Woodley Airfield in a Bristol Bulldog. His wingtip hit the ground and his airplane crashed. He was rushed to hospital where both his legs were amputated, one below and one above the knee. Now for most men, this would mean the end of a flying career. However, Douglas Bodder was not most men. After recovering, Bodder began a long, difficult, and painful effort to become accustomed to his new artificial legs. He wasn't satisfied to simply learn to walk again, and with time he was able to drive a modified car, play golf, and even dance. However, what he really wanted to do was get back in the air, and he got his chance in June 1932, when he took off in an Avro 504 biplane and flew satisfactorily. He passed his medical examination, which declared him fit for service. However, he must have been bitterly disappointed when, the next year, he was invalided out of the service because the king's regulations just didn't allow him to serve with artificial legs. Although he kept busy getting a job with an oil company, Bodder never gave up trying to get back to flight status with the RAF. If the Second World War had not broken out, perhaps he never would have. However, with the start of that conflict, there was such a desperate need for pilots that somebody decided that perhaps the king's regulations could be bent just a little for Bodder. In October 1939, he began his refresher courses, got back into the air in another Avro 504, and then moved up to Ferry Battles, Miles Masters, and then finally to Spitfires and Hurricanes. At this point, Bodder was simultaneously, officially, fit for flying, while drawing a pension for being 100% disabled. Bodder's artificial legs actually proved to be advantageous in a couple of ways. It was thought that he could stand more G-forces because of them. Pilots black out during high G maneuvers as the blood runs out of their brains and pools down in the legs. Bodder didn't have this problem as he had no legs. Also, he actually crashed a Spitfire during the phony war period and crushed his artificial legs. If they hadn't been fake, he would have been badly injured. In June 1940, after the fall of France, Bodder took over number 242 Squadron, which was equipped with hurricanes and was also mainly composed of Canadian pilots, many of whom were not in good morale after having suffered heavy losses in France. Bodder's overwhelming personality and his forcefulness got the squadron operational again and ready for Britain's fight for air supremacy during the Battle of Britain. On July 11th, Bader got his first victory with his new squadron, knocking down a Dornier DO-17 which crashed into the sea. In August, Bader repeated that performance and in September he claimed two BF-110s. During that fight, Bader's hurricane was badly damaged and he nearly bailed out, but he ended up sticking with his aircraft. Another time, Bader lined up to shoot down a Henkel HE-111 bomber 
but then realized that his hurricane was out of ammunition. He actually pondered ramming the German bomber, but then thought better of it and let it go. Later on, as Bader was promoted, he was switched to Spitfires, and we will certainly hear more about him in the episode profiling this other iconic British warbird. Survivors Over 14,000 hurricanes were built before and during World War II. Seventeen airworthy examples are still in existence, including eight flying models in the UK. One notable example is serial number PZ-865, known as the last of the many. It was a Hurricane Type 2C, and as the name indicates, this aircraft was the very last hurricane built. It was kept by Hawker at the end of the war and was used as a chase plane and racer and appeared in the 1968 film The Battle of Britain. In 1972, the aircraft was overhauled and given to the Royal Air Force's Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, where it still serves, along with its sister hurricane, LF-363, another Mark IIc. Vintage Wings in Gatineau, Quebec, has a flying model, a Hurricane Mark IV, painted in the markings of RAF 6 Squadron, the flying tin openers, referring to their tank-busting and ground-attack role. Many Canadian pilots flew the cannon-equipped tank-buster variant with 6 Squadron on operations in North Africa. So, what's it like to fly a Hawker Hurricane? What better way to experience it but to go along with Rob Erdos of Vintage Wings of Canada? I'll read now from his account in the Vintage News entitled, Flying the Hurricane. Parked on the ramp, the hurricane evokes a mixed sense of frailty and terrific solidity. Beneath a fabric-covered exterior is a tubular truss structure like a bridge. The wings are not just thick, but seemingly fat, as if it had just eaten something. It's a big airplane. The long climb to the cockpit starts by pulling a stirrup-shaped step from the lower fuselage. This, in turn, pops open a handhold, as if the aeroplane were extending me an invitation. Climbing over the tall canopy sill, my first impression was an immediate sense of sympathy for anyone who faced combat from that cramped cockpit. The canopy frame gives the impression of peering from inside a birdcage. There are blind spots big enough to hide, well, a Messerschmitt. The Merlin starting procedure is reminiscent of prodding awake a dragon. Preset the levers and knobs. Select the magnetos on. Press both the booster coil and starter buttons and the big propeller starts slowly to turn. There will be rumbling and smoke. The engine is often indecisive at first and you may need to turn on the boost pump in order to keep it running. With perseverance, you are rewarded with the smooth seismic rumble of an idling Merlin. Taxiing the Hurricane is painless once you become accustomed to the pneumatic lever deferential braking system. A bicycle brake lever at the top of the spade grip routes air to the brakes and pedal movement determines the amount of differential braking. Very British. The Hurricane sits placidly upon its wide landing gear, the tail firmly planted behind you. Ground handling is easy, with none of the nose-over anxiety that attends taxi and run-up in the Spitfire. The engine temperatures quickly stabilize, allowing an unhurried run through the takeoff checklist. Word of warning, set the throttle friction to maximum. Now, do it again using both hands. Ready to roll? 
One wisely opens the throttle slowly on an old fighter to ensure that your feet are ready to counter the propeller's directional wanderlust. The rudder is generous in size and awash in Merlin-motivated airflow, so tracking the centerline during takeoff is easy. We perform reduced power takeoffs for engine longevity, however a hint of right aileron is still good medicine against propeller torque. Upon opening the throttle, the first of the Hurricane's personality traits asserts itself. It is loud. Perhaps it's the fabric skin, or that the pilot sits quite far forward, but it's loud even by Merlin standards. There is sufficient propeller ground clearance that normal takeoffs may be done from the two-point attitude. It's nice to see where you are going. Try that in a Spitfire and you will likely leave propeller tips in the runway. When the Hurricane is ready to fly, it's wise to be decisive about it. The maximum undercarriage speed is a ridiculously low 104 knots, requiring quite a zoomy pull-up to get the wheels in motion before exceeding the limit. This is a busy period. Upon liftoff, you give the brake lever a squeeze to stop the main wheels turning, then change hands on the spade grip. The undercarriage is controlled by a unique H-shaped lever mounted on the lower right cockpit sidewall. The lever controls both flaps and undercarriage. Okay, grab the lever and move it upwards on the inboard side to raise the undercarriage. At this point, something will begin to attract your attention as the roar of the Merlin begins to subside. Throttle friction. It creeps. You were warned. Quickly change hands on the spade grip to allow a jab of the throttle back to climb power, plus four pounds of boost, and then set the propeller to 2650 RPM for the climb. Easy, no? Upon my first takeoff, I believe I discovered why they call it a hurricane. Normal takeoffs are performed with the canopy fully open to enable escape in the event of an engine failure and rollover. Airflow trying to negotiate the corner around that steep, blunt windscreen is torn to turbulent shreds. The wind and buffeting in the cockpit are horrendous. The first takeoff was accompanied by peals of helpless laughter as my map, checklists, and test cards swirled around the cockpit and the loose ends of my parachute and harness straps beat upon my face. Needless to say, I have learned and everything is securely stowed for takeoff. My first airborne impressions of the Hurricane were a bit of a surprise. It's, well, wobbly. During maneuvers, the Hurricane is heavy, but pleasant. Rudder coordination isn't optional, but not uncharacteristic of its vintage. Attempts at trimming the aeroplane are never fully satisfactory, and you can't really take your hands off the stick for very long. The control forces are quite high, a situation not aided by horrendous amounts of control system friction. In this regard, comparisons are inevitable. Wartime lore has it that while the Spitfire was more agile, the Hurricane was more of a stable gun platform. Sorry, in terms of classical stability, the Spitfire wins by a small margin on all counts. Nevertheless, the Hurricane's firm control gives it a sense of solidity that would complement an adrenaline-charged young fighter pilot. Flying the Hurricane is certainly work. But it's not that hard work. So why, after 30 minutes in the cockpit, am I dripping with sweat? Gosh, it's hot in there. The engine, oil, and coolant radiators are mounted in the bathtub structure beneath the fuselage, 
with all of those hot fluid lines running down both sides of the cockpit interior. Consequently, it gets mighty hot. Of course, you could open the canopy. It's a choice between being swirled or poached. My preferred compromise is to crack the canopy open about six inches. A normal approach starts with a fighter style overhead brake. I always look inside for a moment to ensure that I work the silly H-shaped lever in the right direction. Inboard for undercarriage, outboard for flaps. Undercarriage and flap extension are both just slow enough to always raise a pucker of concern. Expect a big trim change with flap extension, and it's normal to run out of aft elevator trim on approach. Elevator effectiveness is poor in the three-point attitude. Leave a trickle of power through the flare or it will drop out from under you. The landing is almost, pardon the pun, a bit of a letdown. It's easy. The Hurricane's undercarriage is wide and soft, and the directional stability and response allow adequate tracking through the rollout. Compared to the Spitfire, there's even enough download on the tail to allow some use of brakes. The Hurricane is now a 70-year-old design and represents an era when the monoplane fighter was still being invented. It's neither comfortable nor carefree in the manner of modern fighters, but if you could compensate for a few idiosyncrasies, it did its job well. Even today, the Hurricane has a lot to teach us. So, in closing, does the Hurricane deserve its underdog reputation? Probably. It was a hybrid in a time of rapidly advancing technology, with one foot in the biplane, tube, and fabric era, and the other in the modern fighter era. Its basic skeleton just couldn't be modified in order to keep up with the Spitfires and Mustangs. However, it did yeoman service and played its supporting role when it was needed, but it was fairly quickly superseded by newer, faster, and more advanced types. Be sure to check out the pictures on the World of Warbirds Facebook page in order to better appreciate what has been described today.